French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau is famously quoted for saying, Houses make a town, but citizens make a city. Now, if cities are really a reflection of its people, what do our cities say about us? But also, what does our city planning say about what we want our cities to say about us? During apartheid, the urban plan was clear. The city centers and suburbs were made to represent the white population, and everything stripped of resources represented everyone else, coloreds, Indians, and blacks. At a certain stage, all people of color by law were not allowed to live in places designated for white people. Only one exemption was made, the domestic worker. Only the domestic worker was allowed to live in white territories on their employer's plots. That role was the only glitch in a perfect design, and although their level of influence is sometimes limited, they still make impressions on their urban environments, and sometimes in ways that are unpredictable or difficult to manage in a careful design. To help us better understand what we as a people mean to our urban landscape and what the domestic worker role has done to urban change, we have with us Jabu. Now, Jabu Makubu is an urban designer and is a friend of mine who recently graduated with a Master's of Urban Design degree from WITS. He's been lecturing at the Department of Architecture um, at the University of Johannesburg for a number of years now, and his passion sits where urban design, architecture, and politics meet. He's currently running an elective in the undergrad system on space and protest. Hi, Jabu. Hello, Tuliva. <laughs> so good to have you. How are you? I'm well, thanks. And yourself? It's so good to be here. <laughs> Finally. Yes, welcome to the, <laughs> the Made Sessions on CliffCentral.com. So for the layman and even myself, what is urban design? Simply put, it is really about making spaces, especially public spaces, better. Oh, wow. That's the simplest I've ever heard it. <laughs> what do you think is the importance of public space? These are spaces that we share. These are the common spaces that we get to interact as a people in. And so it's very important for us to design and think of them as a representative of ourselves, of who we are and how we engage with one another. So it's very um it's not something that is quite popular in our country as much as it is in maybe Europe and America. Mm. But I think um it is gaining quite a lot of traction. That's interesting. So so people that are visitors to our cities, do you think that basically our public spaces are what reflects us to them? Yes. So if we have hostile public spaces, then we're perceived as hostile as people. As hostile people. Wow. So, I mean, then what are the implications of urban design on social cohesion if it's so intertwined with identity? Interesting that you'd ask that question. My whole thesis was on <laughs> social cohesion and um, urban design. And um, I wanted to try also find out what does it, that it, does it mean, actually, um, our spaces, our public spaces, and how they define us as a people. And what social cohesion, one of their um, definitions is really about a sense of belonging to mm. a space or citizenship. Um, and a lot of our spaces are designed to exclude and to make you feel like you don't belong in that space. Mm. And so obviously if you're not, if you don't belong to a space, um, there's going to be tension. Uh, there's going to be, um, difference in opinions, difference in many things. Um, and so that aspect to me was quite interesting that our spaces, especially in our country, are designed to 
push you and to make you feel like you do not belong in the country, in the city or in that space you find yourself in. Um, and so urban design has a lot to do and uh, a huge role to play with negotiating that. I mean, it's one field that draws inspiration from a number of other different fields like sociology, geography, um, planning and architecture. Mm. So it's, it, it has the potential to almost bring all these things together and, um, and see what happens. It's very interesting. So what are, what are some of the components? Because you say that you can be sort of designed out of a public space. You can, you can be designed or what is designed can make you feel excluded. What are some of those components that we can, that we can sort of extract that allows us to really see that? Because I mean, I know f- for instance, gated communities, I think. Yeah. Are quite, and it's quite a predominant thing now after democracy. Yeah. Um, but it's environments that very strictly say this is a particular territory. Only certain people come in and out. There's secret, there's security. There is, you know, high, high walls. What are some of the other things that we can see in our urban environments that speak of the same thing? So there's a lot of things, especially if you look at uh, defensive architecture where they design spaces that are supposed to be public or accessible to all to exclude a certain group of people. Mm. And in our cities, um, and we find this in a lot of our spaces where spaces which are ideally should be used by the public are now being, um, gated off or being, uh, closed down or things added on it, um, to make it difficult for that space to, uh, to be used. For instance, barbed wires or, mm. um, shop uh, object on ledges, mm-hmm. especially in the city where you had windows that had uh, have ledges to almost invite people to sit there and uh, congregate. Those spaces now are, um, have like spikes on them and yeah. people can't use those spaces. I remember I was in um, Rosebank a couple of months ago um, and in their main piazza space, uh, they've got this water fountain and feature and all of those things really designed as a space to draw people into that space and maybe sit there. But there was a huge sign that says, do not sit here. And to me, it was quite strange that you put all this effort into making the space pleasant and for people and tell them not to use that space. Mm. And I mean, as, as you also, you know, spoke about how interventions in streets, one of the more prevalent things as well is how gates have come to close off certain suburban streets. Yes. And like at a certain time in the night, it's closed off and it completely fences off suburbs. Um, and it's, it's a very interesting thing that, you know, urbanists talk about with regards to streets and how they see streets as, as its own spatial entity and yeah. not just as something that connects places. Yeah. You know, because if, if a child is playing on a street, for instance, it speaks to the safety and security yeah. of an environment. It speaks to the level of freedom that they, mm-hmm. they feel. It even speaks to the safety that they feel in relation to cars. Yeah. You know, that, that children might be less inclined to play on streets if those roads are ridden with cars. So what do you think? I mean, and now getting onto the topic of the domestic worker and urbanity, yeah. what do you think of what streets are saying to us if domestic workers are actually the primary users of streets? Our streets um, are saying that as a pedestrian, you are not allowed 
They are saying that these are spaces for cars. And if you do not have a car, if you are not in a car, you are not important. Uh, they've been designed or quite, belong. or you don't belong. Mm. Um, and so I would imagine that for, um, domestic workers, that experience of being on the street, trying to get to work and from work to home is quite an unpleasant one because the road and our streets are not created to make that experience comfortable. Yeah. Most of them are not shaded. Most of them, uh, have very badly poor maintained pavements. They, um, if any pavements at if all. If any actually, pavements at all. Yeah. Uh, sometimes there's no pavement to walk, so they have to use the road where the cars drive. So uh, our spaces and our streets, which actually should be more than just points to access one place and another. Mm. Streets actually have an identity. Streets are places of protest. Streets are places where we express ourselves, where we celebrate, where um, we sit and ponder, where we are mm. part of the public. But yet our streets are always trying to push us back into our, uh, our, our homes and our, behind oh. our walls. Wow. So what do you think of that then? Because the domestic worker and, and her, her group of friends, you know, they, they yeah. don't necessarily belong to a certain place and yet they'll, you know, they'll congregate at the corner of yes. the street. Yes. <laughs> they'll all come together and mm-hmm. they, and in a way they activate yeah. the street in ways that it wasn't even designed, designed. for. Um, now, what do you think allows that? Do you think that that was design that allowed that? Or do you think that it was purely out of need? Which, I mean, sometimes is how urban growth happens. Yeah. is just through need and then people do what they want to do. As opposed to using it according to the way that exactly. it's given. A lot of our urban growth or urban developments, especially in our context, uh, the African context, is as a result of an, a response. And we are constantly appropriating spaces to suit how we live because um, um, our spaces, public spaces, buildings, and um, even the city itself is not designed for the black woman. Mm, that is so interesting. It's designed for the white men. Um, mm. and, and so we are constantly appropriating spaces. Yeah. So no one ever thought that we need to congregate and mm. share our days mm. and speak about our children who we've left at home and find out how they are doing. So every day we're appropriating in some way. In some way we're appropriating space hmm. every day. Wow. So tell us quickly about about spatial territories. And can you actually rather explain these territories in relation to apartheid spatial planning? Ha. <laughs> oh, you have arrived. <laughs> I have arrived. It is your time. I was waiting. I was like, when are we going to get to the meaty, gritty stuff? Like, okay. So, goodness. I mean, apartheid was such a well, um, thought through thing. Very rigorous. You know? Yeah. Very rigorous. Very, um, clear in its mandate. Um, and so there was a very clear way in which it used, um, space. To control, to um, almost claim territory or to push things out. So how, unlike many other places, I mean, apartheid was a version of modernism. Mm-hmm. So in modernism, we're separating functions based on um, space. So you lived here, you worked there, and you went to school there. So it's another version of that. But what it did is that it separated things and people so much and provided very little 
infrastructure to connect things. So mm. as black people, you lived in the townships, very far from the city where resources were, very far from places of work. And so that commute every day in and, and, and out. And I hear that you, you were also restricted from trading in certain areas. You were also restricted from trading in certain areas. So you couldn't necessarily open up a shop in a white area. Because yep. you're restricted, okay. Exactly. So there was a whole lot of um, policies and uh, special um, frameworks that were put together to ensure that this lasts and outlasts um, democracy. I mean, we're still <laughs> dealing with these issues even 20 years, 20 odd years post-democracy, that these are still fundamental issues that um, we need to deal with spatially. That's why programs are... Developments such as the corridors of freedom are trying to do that, trying to bridge that gap and create uh, connections um, with the city center, with the resources. But what it's where it's failing is that it's still not providing senses of place, a sense of place or of belonging. You still belong in the township and you oh. have to commute back into the city. So you don't belong in the city. So are those corridors current, currently acting as purely functional things? Purely functional things. I mean, who do they consult about creating a, a, a sense of place in something like that, in a project like that? Because someone that lives in an informal settlement yeah. or in a or in a township... Um, a lot of, a lot of the decisions that they make every day is based on need. Yes. Right? A lot of what they'll ask for is, is, is based on need because so many needs are discounted or just not, not offered. So is it sometimes enough if something like the Cardinals of Freedom fulfill certain basic needs and functions so that in time people bring in their own sense of identity into it? Because really, identity comes when we have all that we need. So do you think that sometimes it's enough to simply give need and then identity will will come? I don't know about enough. Mm. I I think it's a start, but I don't think it's the end or it's enough. I think um, it's it's an attempt to um, bridge the gap. It's an Mm. attempt to stitch a system that actually requires a lot more than just a stitch, Mm. a system that requires surgery, that requires a rethinking of the whole landscape, the whole city itself, because our cities are still not um, responding to the need of a lot of our communities or our people that have to engage with the city on a day-to-day basis. And so I think this is a the start, but I certainly don't think this is the end, and I certainly don't think it answers the question of identity or of providing a framework in which identity could be built. And it's interesting because when when we, I mean, sometimes we sort of speak quite lightly about apartheid spatial planning as if it's not really that much of a thing now. I think, at least in some in some circles, it's spoken as if it it it's no longer that much of a thing. But literally, things like the taxi industry exists as a result of those gaps yeah. that were created, mm-hmm. and it also ca- the taxi industry carries sixty percent of the entire country's workforce. Yeah, so it shows actually the gravity of the gap. Yeah, you know, if literally sixty percent of a workforce is living outside of the place where resources are, mm-hmm. um, so. In some ways, one can say that's a blessing <laughs> that there is something like the taxi industry, something that's able to be independent, something that's able to tend to people's needs rather than 
the the people needing to tend to it, so to run on its its system, to run according to its time. It, you know, the taxi yeah. system actually really works in line with the way that people yes. move and use the city and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And so we've, it's really allowed us to uncover some very interesting ways of how. Um, you know, urban growth can happen and urban sustainability, which is also a very important mm-hmm. thing, considering that uh, density is increasing. Yeah. So so there certainly are lessons learned. I, I guess with any bad thing, there are lessons that can be learned. But really realistically, how much can we actually close those gaps and connect Connect these things that were so well designed to stay apart because they used railway systems mm-hmm. to prevent growth, water bodies, uh, highways. Yeah. You, you can't just tear down a highway <laughs> and allow settlements to grow closer to the city. So what do you do? <laughs> or, or do, or do we put more, more infrastructure into things like the taxi system that has found a, another different and clever way to close the gap? You provide opportunities to belong to the city mm. And I think there's a lot that still has to be done with That part With creating an identity of the city That people belong in the city Right now you still belong in the township You still belong outside the city And the city is this uh, vague, undefined uh, entity mm. um, And so there will always be that commute, but actually the commute itself is problematic mm-hmm. um, because of its distance from the resources. It's, it's not a sustainable thing, um, but more than that, it is negatively impacts on especially people that are earning the least having to spend almost half of your money yeah. in that process of commuting versus living closer to where you work, where you will spend a lot less on transport. You can invest a lot more in other things and in other needs that will eventually, I think, um, give you a sense of belonging and give you a sense of um, being part of the city. Mm. And so to me, the investments should not concentrate on bridging the gap between these places that are so far from each other, but really drawing people closer to the city and creating spaces in the city where people can belong. Hmm. And that's where the public spaces come in. That's where the public spaces come in. That's where um, affordable housing comes in. And Hmm. we see that a lot of um, parts of our cities, which um, were degenerated spaces or parts of the city are now going through what we call gentrification, where they buy a lot of very cheap land in the city because it's not in a wealth state condition, but there are people that live there. And what gentrification does, it really removes people that used to live there because it was much more affordable, closer to work, and um, creates these utopian spaces or spaces that look like Disney World, that they're <laughs> from outside, very interesting, artsy-fartsy spaces. Um, but that process pushes out people that really need to be closer to the city. And so, again, the, the poor are pushed out of the city, out of resources and out of opportunities. And I think to me, really, there needs to be a lot more regulations regarding the development and redevelopment of inner city spaces. There need to be stricter regulations. There need to be regulations that 
almost enforce um, the need to consider the people that occupied the space before the development, that in some way in, in your development, in your frameworks, in your proposals, those people are not displaced yeah. Because that displacement completely completely jeopardizes their chances of survival, and it jeopardizes the the new economies that emerge yes. from them. So, so like the trolley pushes, which exactly. I'm so sure everyone has seen, and that's actually a very good example to put in there. Because if if one struggles to understand how public space can make you feel like you belong, it's literally the difference. For instance, for anyone that stands in Maboneng, yeah. Yeah, anyone that stands in Maboneng <laughs> and stands in the street right next to it. Yeah. That's literally the difference, right? In one yep. place, you feel very safe. You mm -hmm. feel like you can relate to the storefronts and the kind of culture. And in yep. the very next street, absolutely nothing is related to you. Exactly. You don't want to be there. You feel afraid. Mm -hmm. It feels unfamiliar. That is actually quite a, a quite a good example of something, the things that have happened post-democracy mm -hmm. that have established a very particular kind of identity. So it, it shows that it's very possible. It is. But at the moment, the ones with money and the ones that are enforcing those things are not necessarily tending to the 80% <laughs> exactly. population that hasn't had an identity in cities. But at the same time, cities are ridden with very poor people. Um, or yeah. Let me rather talk for Johannesburg yeah. in particular. Um, and and you'll have you'll have places, for instance, like, like Hillbro, where there's, I mean, you see it's a majority of uh, foreign nationals, they even start to have storefronts that are, you know, purely Congolese food or purely Cameroonian food and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Um, and then they, they find very clever ways to make their rent affordable. And so they really find a way to like create a sustainable environment for themselves. Um, do you think that sometimes it's, it's better to first for people to first appropriate space and the city to respond to it because I mean sometimes it, it just seems like the city gets it wrong all the time mm. <laughs> and for different reasons I mean sometimes it's 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 that they don't have enough information sometimes that they don't have enough resources yeah. or it's too politically charged or whatever whatever the reason is can there be a system that safeguards what people do to space to spaces and that holds the the government or city officials accountable for responding to what people say they need. There's a flaw with that system. I mean, it's 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 a reason why it, most officials have now really responded to that with a much more bottom-up approach, where it's about understanding um, that the people that inhabit a space have a say and they have a and know what they and want. know what they want, and so you need to respond respond to those needs instead of always imposing what you think is the ideal. It becomes problematic in um, when 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 that need becomes so um, individualistic. Mm. Uh, where you're working with a group of people, but they have their own agenda. And again, as with many things, there's always politics involved in the creation of urban space, just like how apartheid was made into a much more legal. It was a political decision. Mm. There are always political decisions, even in, for, in, in, in informal spaces, even in our cities. 
Um, and as people appropriate space, they also mark their territory. And as they mark their territory, if you do not belong to that type of territory, you're automatically pushed out. Mm. And so there's always that, um, consideration that one has to make when you're working with a bottom up approach is that you do not exclude, uh, the other. By working with one very specific group of people. So to me, it's always about un- understanding that this is a cell, but it represents a, an organism, a whole body. And it's made out of a number of things. You are studying one cell. Um, and so I do agree with a bottom-up approach, but I think it cannot be the only approach. Otherwise, yeah. it tends to only work for a certain group of people. Now, the city should be designed for anyone who is a migrant who's coming into the city to find themselves, to find a sense of belonging. If we are so particular in designing it for a very specific group of people, it also becomes quite exclusionary, which mm-hmm. is what causes gentrification. It's designed for a very specific group of people that it excludes anyone who's not... um the profile of that group of people. Hmm. Um, and so I think the um, planners and um, um, our government has a lot to play, a huge role to play to ensure that cities are not designed with, with just one, um, one user, one in, user mind. Yeah. in mind. So is it safe to say that the domestic worker probably accesses the most different kinds of territories in our country. Yes. And I find what I also find interesting is how a lot of a lot of us go to different territories to do a specific thing and then we leave. Yeah. So someone from a township will go to um the Johannesburg city to go to university mm-hmm. right and so they they study and then they leave yeah maybe at most they'll buy some groceries and then they leave yeah. but but their everyday activities aren't necessarily in that place yeah. right so that they'll still do recreational things with their friends in the township yeah for example what i find so interesting about domestic workers is that they they live in different territories mm. You know, and so, and 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 parts of the city are designed for different things. So, yeah. so, so a place with an industrial area doesn't necessarily provide many living resources. Yeah. You won't necessarily find a mall <laughs> next to a big factory. No. And yet, for the domestic worker, she does live maybe in a township, and she does also live. In a suburb yeah. area. And so her living needs have to be accommodated very differently in very different territories. And that's where that added layer comes in yeah. for her because, and the fact that she was, she was the only one that was still allowed to stay in white areas, even when the group areas acts, you know, were mm. enforced and no one else but domestic workers were allowed to stay. So there was some level of of living accommodation that needed to happen within white territories. Let me maybe even get more specific. Yes. So to have to have a mall um in, in a white environment back in the day, um, even though she could go to the mall and buy stuff, her her income might not have allowed her to shop in the same places. Yeah. So she might have needed to find other ways of being able to afford food and that's when you could have maybe gotten a rise in 
uh, hawkers mm. or, you know, street vendors that sell vegetables and fruits and that kind of stuff, more to maybe cater to her market yeah. and those that couldn't actually afford to shop in malls. And so things like that then arise in suburbs when you think, but who on earth is buying <laughs> yeah. tomatoes at the side of the road in a suburb? Exactly. So, so those kinds of things. Do you think that the city ever accommodated her presence in a city? No. And there are opportunities with that. Mm. Uh, and that's the informal sector, um, is so intricate. And so it's, it's, it's not just very informal. There's a network involved. Mm. No one just sits at a corner and starts selling things when there's no one there. They have a huge network. They know there are people on the street. They know there are customers that would eventually buy from me. And this is what they would buy. And this is what they need. Mm. And so I'm going to provide that need. I'm going to meet that need. Um, and so there's a huge system. But yeah, the domestic worker was never considered as part of the urban fabric. And so that's why these informal systems arise. Yes. When the actual formal systems can't accommodate exactly. what the people need, informal systems yep. happen. So actually everything, do you think, do you think rather that everything that exists illegally mm-hmm. or, or informally Happens because someone or a group of people or a system needed it. Yes. Even our taxi industry only started after the failure of um, the bus system to take people to work. It could not accommodate all the, uh, the number of people to take them to work. There were strikes and there were all these things. And there was an opportunity that arised from that. And there was a response to that to say, there's a different way in which we could do this and meet this need. Mm. Uh, and so that's how the, our taxi industry um, started and uh, met that need. And so I think informality is as a response to a failure in formality. So can we actually credit cities for that? Can we credit cities for sometimes being too rigid <laughs> mm. that it inspires new ways of 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 using the city or is the way that we're designing cities still a problem? The way that we're designing cities <laughs> is still a problem. <laughs> I think we're still designing cities from a very um, Eurocentric idea, ideology. I think about the car, about the car. It's about mm. someone who can drive to the, to where they need to be. That's why there's such a boom in malls. And and as you say that, it disadvantages a majority of the country then because yes. ma- very many people don't have cars. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. So, I'd, I'd, yeah, there's definitely a lot we can do to design our cities much better, mm. uh, to make them much more pleasant spaces for everyone who gets to engage with that space. And so, which is why I find urban design so interesting and so um it has a role to play to make those spaces better and more pleasant for everyone, mm. uh, including domestic workers, including um, business people. Um, that that space in which we get to interact on common territory, on common ground, um, is pleasant for all of us and that it does not push the one out. Oh, it'll be so amazing if one day, say, at, on the Investec lawn, mm. <laughs> you know, you see a big business guy with his suit and tie you know hanging or sitting next exactly. to a group of domestic workers that are having fun on the same mm-hmm. in the same space because they i mean a lot of people have domestic workers who are business people and they 
at home are such treated like they are part of the family. And when you go outside and you meet a different domestic worker, suddenly there's a gap, there's, um, a distance there. Mm. And so to me, it's always strange to say, but you have domestic workers at your house. <laughs> and when we are in a public platform space, um, the way you engage with people changes. And that's fundamentally what our public spaces are about, an opportunity to meet the other. Yes. And it's so interesting, even as you say that, then do you think sometimes public spaces make us want to be perceived in a certain way? Mm. So again, if you're on the Investec lawn, you're not trying to be seen within, with a domestic worker. Mm-hmm. You're trying to be seen with the most uh, resourced guy. Because then you you're perceived as someone amazing. Yeah. So that is that is quite interesting. So 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 public spaces sometimes inspire us to want to look a certain way. Yes. And to want to represent a certain thing. Yes, and certain public spaces um, um, really encourage that, and 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 really um, get people to think. And perceive you differently. For instance, if you go to a public space, say in Rosebank, and you are sitting outside a coffee shop and it spills over onto the street edge and you are drinking your coffee there, you are perceived differently versus you go to, um, say, Jubair Park in downtown CBD. Um, go there to have a drink or something, you'll be perceived differently. Mm. And so our public spaces do have a at play in, in, in how we are perceived as people. And actually our public spaces w- were so inconsiderate of domestic workers that you won't even see a domestic worker just dr- drinking coffee on a bench necessarily. You know, sometimes you'll see them like under a, a staircase or just in, in some, yeah. some hiding place. Yes. Because of how uncomfortable they sometimes feel to just share public space with other people, whether it's the way that we look at them or whether it's the way they perceive themselves. But there's certainly something about space and domestic workers and cleaners that just public space that just doesn't it doesn't gel. (laughs) Yeah, I think it goes beyond the beyond uh, just the space, because I really think. Because of the jobs that people do, um, your job description sometimes um, gives the impression that you should not be seen. Mm. And so because of that belief that you should not be seen um, uh, because of what you do, you almost want to disappear all the time. And so you choose the spaces that are not public, that yeah. are quite private. But actually, it is really about our perceptions this is what we we do on a day-to-day basis and our buildings are designed to enforce that to enforce hierarchy to say you belong in the space and you don't belong in the space you are just here to perform a function and you get out you should not be seen i was just going to say that for instance with with our department building at the university of johannesburg now understand if you're not designing uh, seating areas or eating areas for students because they can go anywhere. They yeah. can leave campus. They can come back, whatever it is. But you have, you have de- designated seating areas for eating for staff, right? Yeah. The staff room. Mm-hmm. Like they can eat there, yeah. some, some eat in their office, but they mm-hmm. have a place and they, they always have some kind of private space or some yes. kind of semi public space. Mm-hmm. 
cleaners don't. They don't. They literally only have their cleaning closet. Yeah. What, what, yeah, the cleaning closet and that's it. So usually when they're eating, they're always eating in a dark corner somewhere. Yes, hidden and, um, it is. Our spaces, our buildings, our spaces are not designed for everyone. They are mm. designed for a very specific person. And until we really deconstruct that, that we all engage with the space for different reasons, mm. that's when we'll really design better places. Mm. But with that, I, I mean, I, I'm feeling very grateful about the people for who the city wasn't designed for, because a lot of very interesting and exciting things have come <laughs> from the fact that people have felt excluded, like the domestic worker. So... I mean, it's, it's such a double-edged sword because it's, it's sad, but at the same time, it has allowed, it has offered us innovation. I'm very critical about that. <laughs> I think, I think we should not over romanticize mm. informality as if it's the ideal. I think it is a response to a failing system, not because that response is the ideal. Um, is is it possible to have an ideal? I think it's possible to consider everyone. Oh, interesting. I think it's possible to consider everyone. I don't know if that's ideal. Mm, mm. But I think we can't um, carry on and um, think that the taxi industry is such a great innovation, for instance. As much as it, it's a response to something, there's a lot of flaws with that system. There's a lot of um, issues with that system. We can't say that um, informal or traders in the streets is such a great thing because there's a lot of flaws with that system as well. Um, and so to over-romanticize such things, we need to, I think, at least be considerate. <laughs> that it's not the ideal. Yes. In an ideal situation, none of these would probably would have happened. Yeah. Or that the city has to at least be dynamic enough to find a way to um, integrate yes. those emerging things yes. into into their sort of formal system. Yes. And I think yeah, that's where there are tensions with the city and where they think. Because it's not ideal, then you have to get rid of it. I'm not saying that. I think it is possible to consider everyone. Mm. Um, that includes the informal sector. That includes the taxis drivers. That includes the traders. That includes the trolley pushers. That includes everyone that has to engage with the city in a humane way. Mm. With that, Javu... <laughs> Is that it? It is. Oh my goodness. Did you want to keep going? Yes. <laughs> we just started. <laughs> the way I'm thinking, okay, I'm just warming up. Uh, when I get to the good stuff. <laughs> no, really, Jabu, thank you so much. I think this is, it's, it's too much food for thought. Mm. <laughs> and also, especially with conversations around Belonging yes. that you know, fees must fall. Students and things are are throwing out there, and there isn't quite, uh, there 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 isn't quite something pointing at what could be the issue. Yeah. You know, why someone who has been allowed to be in a space for more than twenty years is still saying, "But I don't feel 
like this is my place. I don't exactly. feel like I belong. I don't have my identity here. Exactly. So, so it's really, I think, nice to throw some of these things out. I think, I mean, this is, I guess, what's so difficult about urban design and architecture is, is so, like we we can see what some of the issues are. <laughs> we don't necessarily know what to do about it. Yeah, you know, and and we 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 research and we explore and we experiment, and sometimes we're even afraid to experiment because sometimes we have the to experiment with so real people, exactly. real environments, real spaces. Exactly. Um, but I mean, it it is definitely important to at least make that evident. Yeah. Which which actually gets me to the thought of the day, which is a quote by a professor of practice in city and regional pr- planning from the University of Pennsylvania, Jonathan Barnett. And he says, no urban area will prosper unless it attracts those who can choose to live wherever they wish. Mm-hmm. Which is amazing. I mean, you would think everyone can. Yeah. <laughs> But not just yet. Not mm-hmm. everyone can choose because if you can't afford rent in a certain place, it is yeah. not your choice whether exactly. you can live there or not. That's exactly. just a fact. And so, um, and the one thing to really also keep in mind about the way that our cities were designed is that when it was designed under apartheid spatial planning, it it wasn't designed to attract people. Mm-hmm. It was designed to keep people out. Exactly. That's a very subtle difference, mm-hmm. but it's a very important difference because yes. both of both of those scenarios are designing the crowd. Yeah. But if you're designing to keep people out, that city will continue to do that if it is designed well. Exactly. And so it'll attract the ones that you designed for, which mm-hmm. at the same time limits who you attract. Yeah. So it's a very, very important statement that Jonathan says is he literally, he, he associates the success or failure of an urban space based on people's ability to choose to stay there if they wish. It speaks to, to identity, to freedom, to security and safety. If someone can perceive their future, in a space, if someone can can make plans <laughs> in an environment, it means that they feel like they've been accommodated. It means that they feel like their needs are, t- are tended to. Mm. Um, and so it is not a surprise when you have a large majority of people saying that they don't feel those things in a lot of our environments. And it's worth listening to. Yeah. And that's really what I have to end with. Please make sure to follow us on uh, Twitter at Made Project. That's M-A-I-D-E Project, as well as our Facebook page, which is The Made Sessions. Have a very, very good afternoon. Thank you so much, Jabu. You've been a well of delight and joy and knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell I'm very biased? I love him so much. Love you too, Carl. (laughs) Have a very good afternoon. Bye, guys. Cliff Central Revolution. I've got something important to tell you. CliffCentral.com.